0: Would you open your Bibles to our scripture text, which uh, is found in the book of Acts. We're departing from 1 Corinthians for a time, Acts chapter 16. And... Uh, I think we're going to begin... Um, with verse 14. Um, Every time you read the Bible, every single time you read the Bible, what you need to do is think that this is a book about your life, your church, your town, your heart. Never put the Bible away because it's from a different time, a different place, different ethnic groups. And if there's a part of the Bible that seems foreign to you, pay particular attention to that part. If there's a part that you want to judge as being wrong or bad, pay particular attention because it's a lead pipe cinch that the problem isn't with the Bible but with you. And if you have this approach to the Bible, it will be such a help to you because then the Bible will have the authority of God in your life (laughs) instead of you having the authority of God in the Bible's life which is always the way we want to flip it, right? Every wife wants to flip marriage so that her husband does what she says, right? Every child wants to flip parenthood so that the parents will do what the child wants, right? Joseph and I had some of these opportunities this last week, and by faith I told him that he's going to work this summer even more than he's already working. And I'm very happy to report that he is a good worker. Did I say Joseph? Yeah, I was not telling Joseph what to do this week. It's hopeless, ain't it? It's hopeless, yeah. All right. Just be glad I don't call you Heather. Every church, the people of the church want to tell the elders what to do. Every classroom, the students want to tell the teacher what to do. Every school, the teachers want to tell the principal what to do. In fact, that's your job, isn't it? Yeah. Was. (laughs) She was the head of the union over in Nashville as the teacher. And uh, now you got rid of it, right? Retired. Congratulations. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so when it comes to any authority in our life, what we want to do is flip it so the authority submits to us. It's always what we're doing to the Bible. We're always judging Scripture, and we're always commanding Scripture to think our thoughts. Instead of having Scripture judge us and bringing our thoughts into conformity to Scripture. Now, I say all that because as we read this, what you're going to see is that when the Apostle Paul goes from town to town, every single time the same thing happens. And that is, he preaches the gospel. He calls people to believe in Jesus. And it's so obnoxious and disgusting to the people that what they do is they rebel against it and they try to kill him, to beat him, to imprison him, to shipwreck him. That's the true nature of the gospel. It's heinous to us until we die. And then it becomes the sweetest thing in the world. But religion exists to try to deny that the gospel's heinous and to try to act as if the whole world is just waiting with bated breath for us to preach the gospel to them. And they're all going, yes. And that's not what they're all doing. They're all going, no. Now, the reason I bring that up again is because you'll see that here, and I want you to think about us today here in Bloomington. Because the world would tell you that the entire United States of America is just waiting to have somebody like me come along and explain the gospel, and they'll all believe, right? If that's what you think, then you won't understand why people keep attacking this church physically. All right, now, you probably don't know this, but how many times now? Five, six times? What would you say? Uh, I think it's been, okay, I'll say four. Well, we've had the garage. We've had two smashings of windows. We've had the sign how many times? Okay, nine times. Total, how many? Nine times. Now, come on. In all my years at other churches, only once have I ever had to deal with any attack on the church, all right? But here, we've been here, what, two and a half years? And nine times, right? The latest was a Molotov cocktail against the sign. It burned the sign up. Any of you notice the sign's gone? You know, we finally just gave up, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Now, what are we doing wrong? The designer among us says it's that we have retarded signs. <laughs> Undoubtedly, if we put up a beautiful sign, then it won't be smashed, right? You're going to eat those words. Is that what you said? Did I hear you right? Oh, flame. Oh, flame retarded signs. That's a little bit different than retarded signs. Uh, but I'll bet Nate, where's Nate Crum? I'll bet you were thinking retarded signs, weren't you? Nathan and you guys walk around with your artistic sensibilities. (laughs) So when you read the Bible and you see that constantly the true preaching of the word is hated, whether it's the Old Testament or New, whether it's done perfectly by Jesus, or through a jar of clay like Paul, it's hated. Then, if you open your eyes to see it, what it actually is, then you will understand your life better. And some of you will understand that you can't be faithful to God because you have no cross to carry. You're never running into any opposition for your godliness, and that might be a clue to the fact that you're not godly. Do you understand this? You understand it? Understand it. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that you go out and start yelling at the top of your lungs until you get busted for disturbing the peace. In other words, the opposition is to be because of your godliness, not because you're obnoxious. But godliness is intrinsically obnoxious, and so you will suffer. If you love God, you will suffer for loving him. If you're obedient to him, you will suffer for obeying him. There is a reason people hate God. And there's a reason they oppose those who follow him. Now, what's the example? Well, because our eyes are open and we're prepared to think that Scripture actually does have something to say to us that we should hear, we read it and we study it, each worship service, because it's to worship God, to listen to him. And so let me read to you, beginning with verse 14. The Apostle Paul is traveling around, and he goes to Philippi, verse 12. And then we see, on the Sabbath day, Luke recounts, verse 13, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposed supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Why did she believe? God opened her heart. If you think you're opening your heart, you're not. It's God, all right? The Lord had opened her heart, and when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling, falling after Paul and us, She kept crying out saying, these men are bondservants of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days. But Paul, Paul was greatly annoyed. I love that. Somebody else gets annoyed. Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, after many days, mind you, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very moment. And so what happens? But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion being Jews and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. You remember the old statement that, uh, that patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel? (laughs) being Romans. All right? And why were they upset? They were upset because their profit was gone. That's it. Money, that was it. But they didn't say these guys were eating into our profit or they erased our profit or they ruined our ability to make a profit. What they said was they're throwing our city into confusion, being Jews. So you got the the anarchy, you've got the anti-Semitism, and you've got the patriotism, all right, being Romans. Now, all that leading up to this, the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore the robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, this is not a spanking, this isn't a yardstick, it's not a switch, This is rods. They're beaten and many times. So in other words, they were probably beaten to within an inch of their lives. It's a horrible, horrible punishment. And when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison so that they weren't gently carried in and the handcuffs gently removed and care taken that they wouldn't hit their head on the frame of the car as they got in the back seat of the squad car. They're thrown into prison, into the inner prison. So in other words, it must have been an outer and an inner. They're put where the security is highest and fastened their feet in the stocks. In other words, they were the center of intense, intense discipline from the civil magistrate. Uh, They're beaten many blows Uh, they're thrown into prison, they're thrown into the inner prison, and then their feet are placed in stocks. But God, but God. But about midnight, verse 25, Paul and Silas were commiserating, were stewing, were bitter, were angry, were lamenting, were... Feeling sorry for themselves, we're having a mutual pity party, we're talking about how bad their father was, and how bad their wife is, and how bad their husband is. <laughs> we're uh, thinking that God didn't see them. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. (laughs) Picture it. Hear it. No surprise, the prisoners were listening. They couldn't figure this out for the life of them. What is with these dudes? And suddenly, there came a great earthquake. Not tremors, not an earthquake, but a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. So it wasn't Haiti, was it? Because in Haiti everybody died, right? The prison didn't collapse on them and kill them, but rather the great earthquake did this. It opened the doors and it took off the chains. (laughs) But God... Verse 27, when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he th- drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now, why? Well, because the normal job of the guard of a jail in Roman Empire was to keep the prisoners. And if he didn't keep the prisoners, he'd suffer the consequences. In this particular case, he had been intensely told, not to let them escape. This is why he threw them in. It's why he took them into the inner part of the prison. And it's why he put their feet in stocks. Those things are pulled out in a way to let you know that the treatment that Paul and his companions received was especially intense. And so if he normally could fear punishment for letting his prisoners escape, in this case, these prisoners, if they escaped, there would be no mercy to him. And you say, well, of course there would be mercy. It's an act of God. It's an earthquake, for heaven's sakes. But you don't understand. You don't understand. Years ago, we were on a boat in southeast Alaska. We were in Glacier Bay, and there was a boat there that everybody knew. I didn't know it because I'd never seen the TV show, but it was the love boat. It was up in Glacier Bay with us. And so they pointed out the love boat to us, and we learned there's a television show around that boat. And a couple days later... The pilot of the, uh, the thing we were on um, was listening to the radio, and he heard that the love boat had gone aground, and he said, that's too bad. And I said to him, why is it too bad? And he said, it's too bad because the pilot's done. The captain is done. I said, what do you mean he's done? He said, his job is over. I said, why? He said, well, if you're the captain of a ship and it goes aground, you're done. It doesn't matter. And I said, well, what what was the reason? Was he at fault? And he said, it doesn't matter. If it goes aground, he's done. Well, that's the situation that this uh, prison guard was in. It didn't matter that it was an earthquake, an act of God. He was done. He would die. And so being an honorable man, like they still have over in Japan, all right, you notice how people will kill themselves in Japan? In America, we'll think that that's a good platform to run for public office on. (laughs) you know (laughs) that's about the honor we have well i can show everybody that i'm a i'm a faulty man just like they are and i think i'll run for office Uh, we had a, a wonderful example of the opposite of that recently with the resignation of a congressman in our state commendable commendable admission but anyhow he says you know they're going to kill me. And so I'll do it myself. He takes his sword. He's about to plunge it into his heart and die. And then all of a sudden something happens. What happens? Well, the text tells us, but Paul cried out verse 28 with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And he, meaning the jailer, called for lights and rushed in. He couldn't believe his ears, so he went to see. Rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, I think that that's one of the most precious, sweet, encouraging Wonderful statements in all of Scripture. That that Roman jailer, when his life was hanging by a thread over the fire, he was about to kill himself, Paul calls out, wait, we're all here, don't do it. His immediate response is what? Well, his immediate response is not to sigh with relief and go back into the house and maybe eat some ice cream and then go back to get bed just unbelievably happy at having escaped death. That's what you would expect to happen. And maybe he'd bring Paul in for some ice cream too and whoever was with Paul, certainly not everybody in the prison, you know, maybe give him a little wine, maybe dress his wounds. But that's not what happens. When he is transferred from death to life, in an instant, his response is a response that I understand. And what's the response? Well, the response is, he called for lights, he rushed in, and trembling, with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and after he brought them out, out of the prison, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, why is he trembling? Well, because of the adrenaline rush. He was almost dead, and now he's alive, so he's trembling, right? I don't think that's it. Is he trembling because he's afraid that they may yet escape? After all, the chains are off and the doors are open. What's to stop them? Is he trembling because he thinks that they're in prison, but they're all going to leave now? No. Why is he trembling? Well, if you want to know why he's trembling, look at the question he asks. What must I do to be saved? What is he worried about being saved from? Is he worried that they may leave the prison, and then he'll be accountable again for the loss of his prisoners? No. No. He wants to know, what must I do to be saved? He's trembling, and he wants to know how to be saved. Do you remember somebody else that said, how can I be saved? It happened at night. It was Nicodemus. Nicodemus came at night. Nicodemus wanted to know how to be saved. A Roman prison guard and one of the religious leaders of the Jews. And they both wanted to know how to be saved. You know what I wonder is I wonder how many of us who think God has gifted us with the gift of evangelism. Ever try to bring somebody to the point where they're trembling. They're dead men walking. And they look at us and they say, how can I be saved? You know what I see most evangelistic work in America today being? I see it being a careful and studied project of keeping anybody from ever trembling. What I see is that everybody thinks it's about me. And if I come out of the pulpit and stand right in front of you, I'm so much more approachable. Put my hand in my pocket, sort of, you know. And then people think, well, if that's what it is to be a Christian, it doesn't look that bad. Take off my tie. Surely don't wear a robe. And there, there just isn't... It's so approachable. It's, It's so... Well, he's still a man, and that's obnoxious. But I can't change my sex. I don't want to. But I can take off my tie and come out of the pulpit and, you know, be approachable. And then you won't tremble. And then you'll know that Christians are just like everybody else, only forgiven. Ain't that sweet? And everything we do is to pull God down to our level and to assure other people that God isn't offended and he's not a consuming fire and hell doesn't exist and Jesus is just waiting for you to do the one thing he hasn't done and can't do, which is to make you accept him into your heart so that he can be your friend. This Roman prison guard, he knew authority. And he knew consequences and he knew judgment and he knew death. And so what did he do? He trembled and he asked a simple question and shut his mouth. What can I do to be saved? And brothers and sisters... That's evangelism. Evangelism is doing everything we can to bring the lost to the point where they tremble and they say, what must I do to be saved? That's evangelism. Evangelism is not trimming God's authority. It's not dressing pastors up To look like and to sound like women. It's not putting women in the pulpit or putting women serving communion. All the ways that we use to try to make God more like us in our decadence, that's not evangelism. Evangelism is making life and death and judgment and God's holiness and his purity, and his wrath, and his consuming fire, making it absolutely clear. Absolutely clear. So that when it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. So that when the judgment happens, some Christian love them enough to hang around and not run, And then to say to them, believe in Jesus Christ, and you'll have a friend. But that's not what he said. He said, believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. He knew absolutely what this man was asking to be saved from. He was being asked to be saved from a holy God in his judgment and eternal punishment. You know what? What this teaches us is that a pagan Roman whose job is guarding a prison absolutely understands his wickedness. It is the reality that consumes every waking minute of his life and often his sleep as well and his dreams. His life until that moment had consisted of him eating and drinking and being merry, eating and drinking and dancing and waiting for promotion and then waiting to get paid and then eating and drinking and dancing and waiting for promotion and waiting to get paid. That was his life. His life was a normal Roman jailer's life. And so he ate and he drank and he danced. And then he got paid and then he ate and he drank and he danced and then he got paid. That was his entire life until his death was in front of him. And then he remembered. He remembered everything that his eating and his drinking and his dancing was intended to completely eviscerate from his mind. And if you don't think that's what everybody's life is about, trying to forget the holiness of God and their sin, then you have never been out ice fishing. Because ice fishing to me is the perfect description of the lengths to which men will go to never think of the holiness of God and their own wickedness. Now, I'm not trying to trivialize it, but I have no other explanation for ice fishing. (laughs) And I've done it. And perch, they taste good. And it's kind of fun. Or the tip-ups, you know, the pike, you know, it's fun. But think of what we do. Think of what we do to forget the holiness of God. Think of the books you've read in order to forget the holiness of God. The movies you've watched. The drugs you've taken. The alcohol you've drunk. The sex you've had. The pornography you've hooked. Think of the way you occupy your time. And it's all a grand project to forget the holiness of God and your own wickedness. Every time I read this, where this direct authority of the Roman Empire trembles and says, what must I do to be saved? I I remember a time when years ago, I was at the campus and I was in a meeting of the campus ministers, people that did religious work on campus. And IU was doing what IU always tries to do, which is to shut up Jesus Christ and anybody that dares to speak for him. And in this particular case, they were handing out a form that we were all supposed to subscribe to as our code of ethics, which promised we would not proselytize for our faith. And what that means is speak of Jesus. (laughs) All right. And they sent as a man to explain to us why we shouldn't proselytize, a man who is committed to homosexual practice. And he got up and... He told us how he had had another lover for years, but that lover had recently died of AIDS and now he was in another relationship. And then he went on and he talked about how he had come from Kansas or Iowa or some one of those states out west of here. Um, and how he had a fundamentalist, that was the word he used, a fundamentalist sister, who every time he went home, she would tell him that if he didn't repent, he would go to hell. And so he uses this as an illustration of what we were not allowed to do on the campus of Indiana University. We are not allowed to be fundamentalists. And if we were, we better shut our mouths and never, ever speak about the sin of homosexuality. And so afterwards, there was a godly young woman there whose husband was a grad student. And she spoke up and she said, well, but you're all... Uh, I didn't tell you, he was the head of the diversity advocacy program at IU. He was the head of it, all right? And she said, well, you're all about diversity advocacy. and, And like, what about me as a Christian? What about my husband? She said, you know, what this means is that my husband can't be who he is in his graduate program. You know, he's a Christian. Shouldn't he be able to speak about sin and righteousness and judgment? And, of course, what that caused this man to do was to speak more loudly, <laughs> you know. And basically, he began to browbeat all of us and to intimidate all of us and to threaten all of us and everything. So afterwards, I went up to him and I asked if I could have lunch with him. And, of course, he didn't really want to have lunch with me, he, but he wasn't able to put me in prison. And so uh, as, 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 as a show of his tolerance, we set up a luncheon appointment. And I asked another pastor to come to that appointment so that he couldn't lie about what happened. So we went and had lunch at the Malibu Grill. And we sat there and talked, and he talked about his commitment to sexual immorality. And after about half an hour, 45 minutes of that, um, I looked at him and I said to him, I forget what his name is. Let's say his name was Bill. I said, Bill. You know that homosexual practice is an abomination before God. You know it. And do you know something? He didn't disagree with me. Trust me. God. Is not mocked. What God reveals in Scripture is known to men, sufficient to condemn them. And this man absolutely knew that his sister was right. And so, what we have all around us in life are men and women who have on their conscience every sin that the Ten Commandments condemns, and often all of those sins in one man and one woman. What you have around you are women who have killed their unborn children, and it is the central reality of their life, and they never speak of it until they're drunk. Okay? Now let me ask you this question. If that's who is around us, here in church and outside of church, What will you do to lead them to Jesus? Do you care that their life is dead? You see, I skipped over the fact that Paul was still there. If you had been in prison with Paul, do you think you still would have been there? Do you think I would have been there? Not a chance. Do you think I care about that jailer? Not a chance. I would have been gone, and he would have been dead. Or I maybe wasn't quick on my feet. And so I saw him about to kill himself, and I thought, (laughs) goody. Because there's only one thing between me and freedom now, and that's that man with the sword. The doors are open, the chains are off, And the man with the sword is about to kill himself. And this is what I would expect God to do because he's a wicked man. And was he a wicked man? Yes, he was. But the Apostle Paul was there. Isn't it amazing how people think the Apostle Paul is a brute and nasty? And what we actually see is that the Apostle Paul, more than any other man I've ever read of in history other than Jesus Christ, was constantly laying down his life in love for other men. That's what we actually see of the Apostle Paul. And yet, the entire evangelical church is convinced that he's a monster. (laughs) Does this look like a monster? Yeah, a monster of love. And so... What's the application of that to us? Well, the application of that to me and to you is you got to be there. But you can't just be there. You have to have eyes to see. You have to trust Scripture that the diagnosis that it gives about men's souls is actually accurate. You're surrounded by people who have killed their unborn children, who have paid their girlfriend to kill, who are fathers that have gotten their daughters to kill, to kill their unborn grandchild, who have committed adultery on their wives, who have stolen from their companies, who have every single day on the way to work murdered men driving other cars in their wrath and anger. People who spend their entire lives convincing themselves and their wives and children that they're superior to every other man. You have women who have spent their entire lives rebelling and manipulating their husband. You have teachers who have cowered in front of the parents of their students. You have principals who have cowered in front of their teachers. You have superintendents who are conniving about how to get more pay when they should be protecting the children of their district. You have judges who say that it's a basic right of man to kill little babies. And have the hypocrisy to to lodge their arguments in the Constitution of the United States of America. You have professors who never profess anything. And so far I'm doing well, aren't I? Nobody's going to disagree with me. But do we ever anywhere have the Apostle Paul? Are you there? Would you be willing to go back and... Did you notice that as the story goes on, did you notice that it's clear they go back in prison that night? (laughs) If you keep reading it, it's a pretty funny story because they go back in prison. Something moves the magistrates to decide to release them the next day. And then the Apostle Paul says, "Uh uh-uh, not the kid, ain't going to do it. I'm a Roman citizen. And all of a sudden they end up pleading with him. You talk about a reversal of fortunes. And then, after they've pled with him for a dignified amount of time, he agrees to leave the city and he goes in the next city, and within five verses, there's another riot. (laughs) Now, listen you want to have fun, you don't need drugs, you don't need roller coasters. And you don't need guns. You don't need the Marines. And you don't need the Classics Department. All you need to do is to be a Christian. That's all you have to do. Always, this is the life of Christians. Christians. Christians who take up their cross and follow Jesus. They're hated and loved. But they're never overlooked. He loved Paul. And the people that ran the fortune teller hated him. And that's the way it is. Now, one final thing. Some of you this morning are the jailer, the Philippian jailer. And I want you to know that when you tremble before God and say, what must I do to be saved? God says, come to faith in Jesus. And you go, well, what does it mean to have faith in Jesus? And I'm going to tell you, it doesn't mean anything that you'll ever hear on television, you'll ever hear on the radio. It doesn't mean anything that you'll ever hear in America today from religion. What it means to come to Jesus is to see in technicolor Perfectly, 3D everything, your sin. And then to see perfectly God's holiness. To cultivate a knowledge of God's holiness. And then to see perfectly the coming judgment. Your sin, God's holiness, and the coming judgment. And then to flee to the cross. To flee. Do you know what it is to flee? It's to have such fear behind you that you'll do anything to get away from it. And you'll run to the place of safety. And that's the cross of Christ and the blood of Christ. Because he is your sin offering, turning turning aside the wrath of his Father against you for your sin. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. You look right in the face of your sin, and you don't ever say, but. I love this cartoon, and I, I clipped it years ago. This guy's standing in front of the bench. The judge is in the bench, up high, lifted up, right? And he looks at the judge, and he says, guilty with an explanation, Your honor. That's the way everybody thinks we can come to God. No, 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 no. What you need to say to God is, I am a wicked woman. But doesn't come anywhere into the statement. No buts, no ifs, no ands, no buts. Just, I am a wicked and then you say, but I know from Scripture that you said that your son was sent as a substitutionary atonement. In other words, as a sin offering. In other words, to die my death, to take my punishment, to be my holiness. And so I believe in him. That's it. That's Christianity. That's it. And then, because you have given your faith to Jesus Christ, to turn aside God's wrath, then you're a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And the only thing that's happened in your life is you've gone from being a bondservant of Satan to being a bondservant of God. That's it. Because there is nobody in this life that isn't a bondservant even of Satan or of God. That's it. Those two things. Ice fishing, drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever it is, bondservant of Satan, bondservant of God. All right? And so when you come to God through Christ, looking to the cross, looking to his blood, looking to him, God is pleased to transfer you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And when you come to the kingdom of light, you know what you will say? You will say, I was a Philippian jailer. I lived my life to eat, drink, and be merry, to get paid, and to start it over again. One night, This dude was in jail and a great earthquake came and it shook everything up so that the doors opened, the chains fell off. And I was about to kill myself because I was a dead man walking. And at that moment, he cried out to me from the love of Christ. And he said, don't kill yourself. And I fell at my knees, trembling in front of him. And I said, what must I do to be saved? And do you know what happened? That man who could have left. He came into my house, and he told me about Jesus, about my sin, but about Jesus' holiness and his death and his blood. And so I believed. And, you know, he talked to to everybody else in the house. Everybody believed. He told me that was going to happen. And then we were all baptized. And then you know what happened the next day? The magistrate said, you can go. But, you know, it turned out he was a Roman citizen. He said, nope, I ain't going to do it. (laughs) And it was really funny because he ended up having them eat out of his hand. You know, they pleaded with him, please leave. And, And then he left. And you know what he did? He went to the next town and loved people there. And so now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me. And that's the story of my life, my name, my sex, my nationality, my racial background, my major, what degrees I do or don't have, how I earn my living, how much money I have, who my wife is, who my children are, none of that matters. I'm a child of the king. And I can't wait to go to heaven. I'm dead to this world. I'm dead man walking. From that moment until now, I consider my life nothing but that I may know Jesus, his death, the power of his resurrection, and one day that I'll be with him. It's what it is to be a Christian. That's what it is to be a Christian. So are you going to be there? You're going to love anyone? In particular, you're going to trust Scripture that when it diagnoses the human condition, it's accurate and Rob Bell is a heretic? Huh? Or are you going to listen to all these preachers that sell lots of books? And Remember that old song? Some of you remember it. He's a sweet-talking man. You remember that? Remember that t- song? A sweet-talking man. Paul wasn't a sweet-talking man. Paul knew himself. He'd been standing there holding the cloaks. Remember that? He knew himself.